What is Cracker Lacking Hardware Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you with another solo podcast here. Figured I would go through some stuff, um, deep dives into 2000 NBA free agency that I'd already done, uh, ranking the best 2022 NBA free agency signings so far. Going to start there. We will do the worst as well. I don't want people to get ticked off at that. I'll try and explain my criteria very quickly before we get started. If you're watching this, stumbled upon this, please throw us that permanent subscription, whether it's on YouTube or you're listening to this on the podcast. It helps us out a ton trying to grow the community. And if you're on YouTube, smash that like button in addition to subscribing and also comment so we can break the algorithm. Um, and just and I'll reiterate this every time we do something. I appreciate every single person who watches, listens, returns, subscribes, hearts you all times infinity. Let's get into this, though. So my criteria for this was from the perspective of the team. And I feel like it's it's important to note that I'm not trying to be like anti-labor here. I think every player is either worth exactly what they're paid or underpaid. The market for them is what was offered. So that being said, there are when the market either maybe they accepted less on their own accord uh, maybe I think that the market undervalued them in general. That's how I'm viewing this. I'm all, I'm looking at it through which teams got the best value for the money that they've spent. And I factored sometimes in length of it, whether there's team and player options to help with the tiebreakers. Uh, I feel like I'm going to have to get into the criteria a little bit more uh, when we do the worst contract one, but that's just from where I'm coming to give you a sense of where I'm coming from. The other thing to note here as we go through this is that I'm not going to include uh, just minimum signings because it's really difficult to miss on those uh, unless you're signing DeAndre Jordan and you're the Nuggets. I thought that was bad. Or the Miami Heat sending a, a delegation to go recruit Udonis Haslam. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, so like the Bulls getting Goran Dragic as an example or or even getting Andre Drummond with an unspecified exception. I don't know whether they use the biannual or the mid-level yet. It hasn't been to the best of my knowledge. Um, I left those out and tried to leave for the most part out one-year deals in general as well. With that in mind, though, I there were eight of them that I came up with, and I ranked them because rankings are fun. Let's do this. Number eight, Isaiah Hartenstein, New York Knicks. Contract was for two years and $16 million. I really hope Knicks fans watch this because the worst contracts slot, uh, you know, video is not slash podcast, whatever it is, is not going to be kind to them, unfortunately. I don't know that enough people know how good Isaiah Hartenstein was last year. He's a very solid rim protector. His footwork on defense could be a little bit quicker, um, but he was one of the the best statistically rim protectors in the NBA. Opponent shot 47.5% against him at the basket. That was the best mark of one among 163 players who contested at least 150 rim, rim attempts. That's a big deal. I really like him, though, for what he brings on offense. He's one of the better passing bigs. Uh, on the move he's not super and i've received pushback from this he's not super explosive he's not gonna have these these highlight dunks but he he can finish above the rim like it's catch and finishes right there so he is a threat when he's getting into the lane but there's also some variability to his offensive game uh, if you're gonna use him as the screener or just look for him on dives like he has a nice little uh push shot or, or floater, whatever you want to call those. He had almost 59% of them on nearly 100 attempts with the Clippers last year. He also did explore his three-point range. Uh, canned 14 of his 33 pointers last year. That's 46.7%. And I think when you look at him, what he does for New York, the big man rotation can get a little bit crowded. They did wave Taj Gibson. I don't think 
that Tibbs is ever going to want to play Randall and Toppin together, but it's something the Knicks should explore. Um, this is the pathway to them not, you know, going with the traditional center or rim protector, I guess, while then spacing the floor around everybody, because I think he has more three point volume to explore to get him at two years and 16 million, I think was a steal. I thought he was going to get probably like nine or 10 a year on average. So to get him for less than that was a good job by the Knicks. I honestly would have him higher if I could guess what playing time he was going to get. Even with Taj Gibson gone, you have Jericho Sims, Julius Randle, Mitchell Robinson, and Obi Toppin. So I could see him playing more of just this like spot role. Let's get into number seven, Dante DiVincenzo of the Golden State Warriors. This was not one I saw coming. Uh, you talk about someone whose value has just plummeted. Uh, two years, $9.3 million. There's a player option on that final, that second season. I call it final. Like it's not super short term. This price tag just reflects uh, an extended decline uh, from Dante DiVincenzo. That's been fueled, I think, predominantly by the left ankle injury he suffered in uh, during the 2021 playoffs. We're not that far removed, though, from him just capably filling all these gaps for the for the Milwaukee Bucks who went on to win the title without him. But still, I, I like the idea of someone who can do a bunch of different things, even if he's not a master of anything. And we've seen the Golden State Warriors kind of optimize. I don't want to say downtrodden stocks, but just like Otto Porter Jr. stock was on the decline when he signed to Golden State. Gary Payton II was more of sort of this unknown. So they have experience sort of rebooting these perimeter players. And I like that for Dante DiVincenzo if he can stay healthy. And when you're looking at him in his peak, uh, this is someone who will just sort of shape shift depending on his role. Uh, he can spearhead fast breaks after grabbing defensive rebounds, dart in for passes from the corners and skedaddle around longer defenders when he's attacking the basket. He is best served playing off others, but he does have some, some like pick and roll orchestration uh, ingrained into his game. Certainly more so than, than GP two, the bucks did at one time use him as like backup point guard. Uh, and that, and he, the offense was fine during those minutes, even without a tentacumpo that year. Anyway, Golden State's defense, I think, is going to suffer a little bit uh, without GP2 still, but DiVincenzo, he's less of an eclipse, but he provides plenty of functional optionality. His hands are agents of disorder. He can test routine passes and bust up possessions from behind while, while shuttling between both guard spots and some wing assignments. Hanging within the Warriors rotation will probably demand that he handles the ball less and is more taking more of those off-ball shooting reps or, or cuts. I think that's fine for him. Uh, he was always an opportunistic or has always been an opportunistic slasher. And he down 42.2% of his spot of triples on real volume after he was traded to Sacramento last year. He also shot 38.7% on catch and shoot threes in 2020, 2021. So if that efficiency is going to hold, this is someone who might see a lot of court time. Maybe if Moses Moody really busts out or the Warriors make another addition after recording this or, if Jonathan Kaminga really busts out, I don't think there's a ton of overlap though with DiVincenzo and, and Kaminga, unless you're trying to play positionless. I think you get minutes from DV at the two and the three though. And that look, that's a big deal without GP two there. And they even lost Damian Lee. They lost Juan Toscano Anderson. Their wing options are just a, a little bit shallower than they were last year. We don't know what's going on with Andre Godala. I think the assumption is that he's going to retire. So this is, this is huge. And you can argue that DiVincenzo is more of a wing than GP2, which is why he might be a better fit. He was a better fit for the Warriors because they were cheaper. I thought to get him for – this isn't even like biannual exception money, basically. That's basically what they got him for in the first year was the biannual exception, which they, they couldn't spend. Like for less than the taxpayers mid-level, even if it's for one year, even if you can't afford to keep him after that season, 
that's just a really good signing for them. If, if he's going to stay healthy is the big one, which is why he's at number seven. Number six, John Wall with the Los Angeles Clippers. I think some people, two years, sorry, $13.3 million. That's the taxpayer's mid-level deal. Throwing the entire mini MLE at Wall is not without risk for the Clippers. He has knee and Achilles injuries in his rear view and has only played in 113 games over the past four seasons. That being said, Wall's availability or lack thereof, isn't as damning, I think, as it, it initially seems. Uh, last year's absence had everything to do with a player and team unable to find common ground on his role and nothing to do with his his physical health. So there's that. And if you flash forward, or if you flash back to 2020-2021, Wall was pretty effective through his 41 games with the, Houston, with the Houston Rockets. His efficiency from the floor dipped from beyond the arc on twos. Finishing around the rim wasn't great, but the physical tools were still there. He maintained his overall on-ball acceleration for which he became famous, and he leveraged that speed into his usual dose of, of playmaking. Trips to the foul line, I think he was averaging like almost six free throws per game there, and then his rim frequency was up. It was like one of his three highest marks, and it you know might have helped the lineups that he was playing, playing in with Houston, but the fact that he was getting there, go back and watch just some John Wall with the Rockets. That dude was still really fast. Stepping into this more specialized role with the Clippers should only help. They don't need Wall to play 35-plus minutes or appear in every game. They need they need rim pressure, which he provides. Uh, and an offensive steward for the half-court possessions that bog down or when they want to get uh, out in transition more, which was not – it's not necessarily their forte when you're running an offense through Kawhi Leonard. That's not a bad thing, but it just makes them more dynamic. Wall can help fill all those gaps. I do wonder – how he's going to fare when he has to work away from the ball more often, but he did play with Bradley Beal. Let's not remember. It's a little bit different when both Kawhi and Paul George are on the court, there could be some like rear real heavy stationary duty for him, even if they're staggering minutes, which they probably should. I expect Reggie Jackson still to start and then wall to kind of oversee a bunch of units where it only has one of, if not none of the Clippers superstars. But then I went back and looked, I'm not really concerned about his off ball shooting anymore. He shot 38.4% on 125 standstill threes in 2021. And he knocked down, he's knocking down a combined 38.4% of these looks overall since 2015, 2016 on 628 attempts. Like that's not the highest because we're talking about, you know, more than a half decade now and he missed a bunch of time, but 628 shots is just not nothing. So I actually am higher on this signing than I was to begin with, it's just really the health questions and could there be some awkward uh, offensive fits? I don't even have to worry about what he's going to look like defensively because of how good the Clippers are going to be there. Food for thought, I, I considered putting him higher, but six feels, when we're looking at the rest of these deals, like the right spot for him. Number five, Otto Porter Jr. Toronto Raptors. Two years, $12.4 million, 23-24 player option. So the second year has that player option. We know Otto really wanted to be in Toronto and he ended up getting less than what amounts to the non-taxpayers mid-level exception. So the Warriors could have technically paid him more by about a million bucks over um, the life of this contract. I can't believe he signed for this little. I know that he's someone who probably can't, you know, play more than 20, 25 minutes anymore. But like he shot... 37% on threes last year and 5.6 attempts per 36 minutes. 
and while he doesn't, I think there was this thought when he was traded to Chicago during that first 15, whatever game stretch that he had some real on ball juice to offer. It's also something this podcast talked about when he was on Washington. I thought it might be there. It's clearly not there. Uh, that's fine. The Raptors don't need that. And that's in part why I love this signing for them is he's another dude who stands between six, seven and six, nine with that seven plus foot wingspan. Uh, but they have enough creators now with Siakam, Fred Van Fleet, and even Scotty Barnes. And then you have, I don't think people realize how much OG Ananobi and Gary Trent Jr. can sort of cover as these secondary creators. Uh, that that just makes this an even better fit for me, uh, from my perspective. And I, I like, you know, when you're trying to stay with this positionless model, I like that he can really spell anybody on the defensive end, knowing the lineups that the Raptors like to run out now under head coach, Nick nurse, where there'll probably be moments where Otto Porter jr. Is like the shortest guy on the court or the second shortest guy, or he's just their de facto two guard. Uh, but defensively, like if you're trying to look at this more from a conventional perspective, whether it's Ananobi Barnes or Siakam's assignment, like he can take them. And so that's basically me saying he can span the two, three, four pretty comfortably. And he's probably girthy enough to hold up against certain fives. Um, if you're going to switch a ton. So I do think when you're going up against quicker ball handling twos and threes, it can be problematic for him, but he's just so long that it'll do in a pinch. I, I think the only thing to dislike about this deal is, and look, the Raptors needed floor spacing and Otto Porter Jr. Qual absolutely qualifies. You probably want to see him take up that volume a little bit um, on a per minute basis. He still absolutely works for what they need on offense. I think the only, you know, sticklers are only going to harp on the fact that there's that player option at the end. So they're only going to have his non bird rights that prevents them from resigning him essentially. But like if he plays really well and opts out and we know already know that he really wanted to be in Toronto because I think his, I can't remember if it's his wife or his girlfriend is from Toronto. They can use their non-taxpayer mid-level exception to try and bring him back. So I don't think this is the, the end of the world there, but it could be a one-year rental either way. I really just love the fit here. Number four is Amir Coffee of the LA Clippers. Someone else who I don't, outside of Clippers fans, I don't think un understand nationally how good he is. I was surprised he only got three years, $11 million. Looks like it's all guaranteed. That's perfectly fine. I, how did no one try poaching him from the Clippers is beyond me. Everybody wants wings. Uh, they have a surplus of wing types and you could have offered him the biannual exception, which was like 4 million bucks a year. And that would have been more than this. Do they, would they have matched that? They could have because he was a restricted free agent. I don't know, but I just look, I, some people might sort of glue to what his role will be this season, which is going to be pretty small. When you look at their wing base. Now they have a healthy Kawhi and Paul George, Norman Powell, Marcus Morris, senior Terrence Mann and Nick Batum are all ahead of him in the wing hierarchy. Let's not forget about Robert Covington either. Uh, and then head, and then Ty Lue is going to give ample court time to Reggie Jackson and John Wall. I think that's important because we saw Amir Coffey do some ball handling last year when the Clippers were decimated by injuries. He ran some spot pick and rolls. That's in part why I was so high on him. Uh, his defensive workload was decidedly above average during that time. Uh, he switched across the two, three, and four spot spots and guarded plenty of just primary pick and roll creators. Again, his offensive role was sort of limited, but that is – that's appealing when you're at full strength and you're the Clippers. Uh, they, they gave him a license to attack though. He shot 53.3% on drives, hit 54.2% of his twos overall, but he also shot nearly 40, 38, excuse me, percent from three. This is someone who to me is extremely plug and play 
infinitely scalable to any team, but there might just be like a little bit more of his to offer. Can he play a heavier role on a really good team? I don't know if we're going to find out because of how deep the Clippers are. If they trade Marcus Morris senior, uh, I could see, which is something that's been bandying around the, the NBA ether at the moment. I could see that opening up sometime for him. But even then, like just having so many really good, like two, three, four types that might limit how much he's going to play. This is still a steal of a deal for the Clippers. And I, he's 25. I still just can't believe someone didn't take a a bigger flyer. Maybe he really wanted to stay in Los Angeles, but good for them. I broke my exception for number three because I had to break my, my rule, whatever it is for number three with a minimum contract on one year, TJ Warren of the Brooklyn Nets. Look, we don't know his medicals. He's played in just four games over the past two seasons while dealing with a left foot injury. I honestly don't care. This is just like someone who was a legitimate 20 points per game scorer last time that he played. And he did so efficiently. And this is look when you're looking at it from the Nets perspective, which we, we are, this is zero risk. All reward flyer is what I wrote when I was, uh, you know, in the article that I had on this, it's not because the Nets are imploding painfully and slowly right before our eyes. And my dad, but this is like, uh, like bubble TJ Warren was a thing. He like, and that wasn't even, that was a, the best stretch of his career, but his performance at Disney world wasn't just completely out of left field. He averaged 19.8 points per game while downing 57.5% of his twos and 40.4% of his triples through that entire season, 67 appearances. That efficiency, when you're looking at the benchmarks and scoring was unmatched by anyone else in the league. No one was basically averaging 20 points while shooting 57% on twos and 40% on threes. That is mind melting. Uh, He also, which probably doesn't receive enough credit now because it feels like it was forever ago. He routinely guarded some of the toughest on ball assignments per B ball index. Malcolm Brogdon of that Pacers team was the only other player to spend more possessions going up against number one options from the other team. And he was like doing it. Well, I get that career years don't always hint at new normals. And again, Warren has missed a lot of time, but the scoring in 2019, 2020 is hardly an outlier. And both his three point stroke and defense approved immediately upon a coming to Indy in 2018, 2019. So I think you could argue that that's not really an outlier either. Um, his best case outcome, it, I don't care how unlikely it is for him to meet it, that it's even on the table for a one-year, $1.8 million deal is pretty wild. Uh, and this is someone who's going to give the Nets whatever version of them that they are, uh, either a plug-and-play shooter because he turned himself into just a 40-plus percent guy from beyond the arc. There's also like the hint of self-creation abilities. We'll have to see how his quickness is and just how his, his on-ball creativity is post-injury missing so much time there's no downside here for brooklyn the really the only downside is if he returns to anything resembling his previous form it'll be impossible for them to keep him they won't have his bird rights and that player that player that tj warren was the last time he was on the court is more than a mid-level guy like that's someone who's probably getting between 15 and 25 million dollars a year on the open market and he's still sort of young enough to where if he remains healthy all year i wouldn't be shocked if he got it, I, I, I wouldn't predict it, but if his best case outcome is actualized and he stays healthy, it's absolutely on the table. Number two, Kavan Looney of the golden state warriors, three-year contract 
22.5 million guaranteed 25.5 million overall. I was flabbergasted that he was this cheap. Uh, big man markets are always wonky, unknowable entering the summer. Just even by those standards, this is, I, I termed it highway robbery by the Warriors. You can see it on the screen if you're watching this, um, but I'll read it here as well. Mitchell Robinson got $15 million annually from the Knicks. JaVale McGee received almost as much guaranteed money from the Mavericks and a player option on the third year at the age of 34, which he is right now. Mo Bamba is also getting about as much guaranteed money over the next two years as Kavon Looney's getting over three. How? I, like, I'm not sure who needs to hear this, but Looney is more valuable than all the bigs that I just listed off. Uh, and you could cling to the potential of Robinson and the stretchiness of Bamba if it makes you feel superior. Looney's still 26, and he was just no worse. Think about this. No worse than the Dubs' fourth most valuable player during the NBA freaking finals. If you think that's an overstatement, I almost went third. But you had Steph Curry. You had Andrew Wiggins. Name me the player with absolute certainty who was more valuable to Golden State during that series. I don't think that there is one, but I'll leave some wiggle room if you really thought Draymond's defense picked up at the end or you really valued what you saw from, from Clay Thompson during those moments. He had, I think, probably an understated series defensively at points, even though he looked hobbled a bunch. That, like, I get that the big man market is just sort of unknowable all the time, but that's wild to me. And I think... I think a lot of people believe Looney's like the product of the Warriors. This this isn't Warriors culture at work. Everything he does translates to any situation. Uh, he's ubiquitous on the glass. He knows how to navigate tight spaces on offense because of when he plays with with Draymond and other non-shooters. And he really doesn't get enough credit for, for his ability to hold up on switches eons away from the basket. I've seen people comment about how slow he can be, and that's why you wouldn't give him money. Yes, he's more of a traditional big. He doesn't have all this range, but he holds up really well on switches, and the data is going to back that up too. Maybe this is a personal choice by Looney. He he won three wings with the dubs, and he's guaranteed a spot in their starting lineup. But the partial guarantee on year three, that suggests this deal is at least somewhat the byproduct of the market. And if that's the case, truly, inarguably, Shame on the damn market. I can't believe the Warriors were able to keep Kavon Looney at this price. My best contract of 2022 NBA free agency so far, though, is Bruce Brown of the Denver Nuggets. Two years, 13.3 million amounts to the non uh, amounts to the taxpayers mid-level exception. There were some people that were quibbling, oh, they didn't get three years out of Bruce Brown. Look, after two, you have early bird rights. If you really want to keep them, it, it gets a lot easier to do so this is like the perfect signing and one thing you some youtube commenters will be mad about this by the way because they didn't like that i answered a mailbag question about the nuggets in the tax i liked this because it showed the nuggets were willing to spend while they were already in, uh not already they had basically exited the tax with the will barton monte morris trade and they go back in with this there's still time for them to duck it but the fact that it seems like they're willing to continue paying it that matters to me and just so we're clear i don't think the I never viewed the Monte Morris Will Barton trade as an actual salary dump. It was a, like it dumped salary, but KCP was, I think, to the Nuggets, probably just as valuable as Barton and Morris combined. I think people undersell what Morris can do as sort of a game managing shot creator. You look at his his mid range game, and 
Nuggets fans hate Will Barton. I think a healthy Will Barton still has levels to what he can do on offense. They didn't need the offense, uh, especially if you believe in Bones Highland. So that trade, they did exit the tax for a moment. That clearly wasn't the only reason they made that trade. It was probably just an incentive. I digress here. Bruce Brown, my God, the Nuggets really needed just more defenders. They had Aaron Gordon last year guarding all these smaller players. Um, overworking him into oblivion is what I wrote. He was on the point of attack way too often. Getting KCP helped that immediately. And now you add Bruce Brown to that equation. Uh, I don't care about his offensive fit. He's a career 29.8% shooter from deep. But last year he shot 40 plus percent on threes. And I don't. I also don't care that 70% of those looks were basically wide open. That Those are the looks he's going to get in Denver. Nicole Jokic is a great passer. So is a healthy Jamal Murray. So is, I think, Bones Highland's a fantastic passer, too. Also, defenses aren't going to guard him like he's Steph Curry just because we saw him shoot 40% from last year. They want to see if it's real. Even So he's going to get those same standalone opportunities in Denver. Even if it's not real, I'm still sort of enthralled or intrigued is the word with what Denver could do with him as a screener. If they want, look, they could run a pick and like an inverted pick and roll where Nicole Jokic is handling the ball and Bruce Brown is setting the screen for him. We've seen Brown make nice passes and shots out of the short roll. There's even some slow it down. I wouldn't try this, but maybe that's also why you felt a little comfortable giving up a Barton, uh, even if you thought that he was a, a net negative for your team. Like he can slow things down and kind of work in the half court and make passes that way, which is that tertiary creation is something a peak Will Barton provides. Maybe that's why you also felt comfortable making the, the Barton Morris trade, sending them to Washington. I don't want to see Brown doing that. If, he, if it's happening a bunch, something has gone terribly wrong and in, in Denver, even if it's strictly during the, the non Jokic minutes, but he's also like, he can hang out in the dunker spot. He's a fine cutter. And since, because you have Jokic who is a five, but on offense, he is whatever you want him to be. Brown can be missing his threes or not shooting well from three or be a non-threat from beyond the arc. And everything's going to be just fine on offense. I think there's still ways that he can contribute there. It's just more important of the defensive returns. Uh, they're going to be massive. He Brown logged almost equal times against point guards, shooting guards, and small forwards last season. Just defending those three positions, like on a full-time basis, all of them qualify. Uh, and we saw him like dabble in these reps against fours and some fives. That's not, I mean, Denver might want to explore it. Like when they're running bench units, throw Gordon, uh, Jeff Green, Bruce Brown up. I don't know how much that's like terrible shooting, but if, if DeAndre Jordan's really a bust, then you can have all these different guys sort of switching off of fives. They don't trust Zeke Naji. It feels like to defend fives too often, um, but you could throw those four guys, Zeke Naji, Jeff Green, Bruce Brown, Aaron Gordon, just on the court at the same time, include Michael Porter Jr. for like, and Zeke Naji's a good shooter, but include another good shooter, whether it's a Murray or Bones Highland and see like what happens there. I just don't hit. I don't, I'm not sure people understand how malleable outside of, I think Denver and then Brooklyn fans understand what Bruce Brown's going to do defensively. His malleability, Bruce Brown dramatically increases the variety with which head coach Michael Malone cobbles together lineups. So there's a chance that he's going to go down as the most valuable defender on what ends up being the, the Western Conference's best team. Two years, $13.3 million. That's a fucking steal in my book. I hope you enjoyed sort of this quick podcast video on YouTube. Please, if this is your first time checking us out, throw us the permanent subscription comments and likes and subscriptions on YouTube. Help us out a ton reviews, ratings, and just subscriptions and downloads help us out a ton wherever you get your podcast. 
I heart every single one of you. And until next time, and like always, just in case you're around these parts and you do not know, I leave you to shout out to one, the only, the indelible, the incomparable, the incomprehensibly amazing, Frank Mueller Keenan.